Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I am joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin, who is just getting over an illness. How are you? I'm doing pretty well now. How are you, Cass? I am doing A-OK. It's early in the morning for me, but I'm feeling awake and ready to talk about a point of contention, I think, right now, which is the SEC, or the Securities and Exchange Commission. Ever since Gary Gensler became the new commissioner of the SEC, I would say everyone in crypto has been talking about it more. Everyone seems to be incredibly concerned about both Tether and where DeFi will wind up in all of this. And I think it's fair to say that most people just hate the SEC. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I think a lot of people in crypto have pretty negative opinions of the SEC, but I don't know that the populace writ large does. Mm, I don't think it gets a good rap. And the reason I say that is twofold. I think that they generally are caught, but this is, and I'm not a, trying to be an apologist for the SEC here, but I, I'm just trying to make it clear that I think they're caught between a rock and a hard place. If they start going after industries and businesses that seem very scammy but are arguing that they're innovative, they'll be called innovation killers. But if they don't do anything, which they've been known to do, if they don't do anything for years and years at a time, for instance, Bernie made offerings a bell, then they look like they don't have any purpose whatsoever. And it's not only it's not only that, I would say that the whole scheme of fining companies instead of shutting them down has done them a disservice as well. So so they come across generally as ineffectual and keen to make sure that their budgetary needs are met for the next year. That's just the general idea I get in finance and finance are the only people that are really paying attention to them. So anyway, I think it's important for us to kind of discuss the history of the SEC, how it was formed, why it exists, and the issues that are leading people to feel the way they feel. The SEC was started after the 1929 crash of the stock market and during the Great Depression. There was, well, after the stock bubble just blew up, there was finally enough political will to actually organize some kind of regulatory body. And so out of this period, we see like the Glass-Steagall Act that changed investment banking laws. We see the security, the SEC formed, we see the Securities Act passed. We see this new group of regulations which were meant to really focus in on increasing disclosure for people who were issuing stocks. And then the 1934 Act was meant to regulate places where this trading could occur. And actually, I think this kind of connects to what you're saying, where the SEC is often worried about being seen as an innovation killer or stopping the natural growth or things like that. And that interacts with the fact that in order for them to do anything, to have any kind of effective enforcement, what they really need is political will, a desire of the populace and the politicians to want to actively enforce and regulate these things. And so the SEC was formed out of this brief period where that existed. But in America, there's a tendency where once things get good again for you to no longer feel it's as important. And so over the many intervening years, we've often seen the SEC look pretty toothless. The prime example of this is really the Madoff scandal. And that was because Harry Markopoulos reported Bernie Madoff repeatedly to the SEC. 
wanting them to do something about it, and they just didn't do a thing. And I think that's kind of just been the idea in general since then. It's hard to point to a specific case in the last, I don't know, 20 years that proves how effective and how the SEC works for the people before bad things happen. It doesn't seem like that's their role. I'm willing to outright say that it looks like that is definitively not their role. They only really come in at this point after the harm is done, levy fines or occasionally more severe enforcement actions, and then move on. And almost always it's civil cases brought with fines with very few long-lasting ramifications. And I think this is probably why you're saying a lot of people don't like the SEC, because we saw like the great financial crisis, the collapse of the housing market and all that, all of these bankers who people had this righteous anger at, and then there was so little done by any of the regulatory agencies, including the SEC, to prevent anything like that from happening again, or to levy actual consequences against those people, which is honestly kind of different from the era where the SEC came out of, because during that time you had like the uh, the PCORA committee, which was looking into a lot of the wrongdoing of these various bankers and stuff, and that like very public inquiry into bankers and their wrongdoing helped create the political will to do something like the SEC. It's worth pointing out because we often talk about executives, executive leadership and how executive leadership can point to some red flags within an organization that the SEC was started by Roosevelt, but he appointed Joseph Kennedy as the first chairman of the SEC. Kennedy was a millionaire. He was a financier. He, if you want to talk about uh, a pretty person, uh, Joseph Kennedy seems to meet, check all the boxes. He was a racist. He was a defeatist. He was into appeasing Hitler. Uh, this guy ticks every single box of not that good a guy. But because he was friends with Roosevelt, he was appointed as SEC chair. The role of the SEC at that time was to restore investor confidence in securities, to restore integrity to the securities markets, to end million-dollar insider trading by top officials, and to establish a complex and universal system of registration for securities sold in America. Reflecting on that now, uh, 87 years later, I feel like they failed. They might have succeeded at that point, but the average Joe doesn't get Wall Street generally. I don't think anyone thinks there's integrity when it comes to finance. Multi-million dollar insider trading, I mean, I can't think of a more normalized thing in finance than that kind of under underhanded dealing. And while they may have established a complex and universal system for registration of securities, I mean, I think that's fair. Uh, now people are just doing DeFi and DAOs and starting their own blockchains. So uh, have they succeeded in that either? I don't know. I don't know. Reflecting on what they're supposed to accomplish and who was left in charge at the beginning is disheartening. Yeah, and, and I think part of it is it wasn't just the beginning. And this is a thing you and I have talked about before in past episodes, just like the regulatory capture side of regulations and the revolving door between industry and regulatory agencies, where very often the agencies that are meant to regulate bankers, meant to regulate this type of security stuff, come directly from the industries they're supposed to be regulating. 
And then on the flip side, many of them, when they finish their time as regulators, go straight back into those industries. And so because of that, the regulatory bodies have been co-opted in such a way that often their interest is less in protecting the public, ensuring the integrity, and taking care of those that fourfold mission, and is instead focused on ensuring liquid capital markets for these industries they're supposed to be regulating, making sure that the industries they came from are still able to sell their stocks and make their trades and do the things they need to do to continue existing. Right. And to your point, the SEC has existed for 87 years. And over those 87 years, there's been 33 different commissioners of the SEC, which means that the average length of time that someone spends as the commissioner of the SEC is just over two years, right? Two and a half years. To me, that screams that these people are taking up the role of SEC commissioner, figuring out which industries are either the most lax or are going to need the most help from previous regulators. So they find a nice cush job and then they quit and they take it. And it doesn't seem like a new thing. You can look through the history of the commissioners and you'll just find throughout all of this regularly people who will just be there for a year, people who will just be there for eight months, nine months. Like this is not that doesn't point to a functional regulatory body. Yeah. And part of that comes down to just how the United States does politics and does executive functions, right? All these chairs are going to be appointed by the president. President's up for election every four years. Anytime there's a turnover, the new guy's going to want to oust the old guy. And so you are kind of forced to have this bit of kind of rapid exchange between these. But the end result, I think, of that is often the mission and goals of these regulatory bodies is mercurial and fluid. So like, Clayton comes in in 2017, and the impression I got is that he had very different goals of what he wanted the SEC to do than Mary Jo White before that, right? And many of his goals was reducing the SEC's uh, day-to-day enforcement actions and active, like, on-the-block regulating. And so the structure of the SEC changed for, like, the three and a half years he was in there. And then someone new comes in and has to rebuild for it to support their mission. This, like, discontinuity, which is both a function of the political system and a function of the fact that many of these are just looking for their next paycheck, results in this regulatory body that has some issues regulating. Yeah, and to be clear, Mary Jo White, the commissioner you mentioned, who was commissioner for four, roughly four years, she now represents, or at least uh, legally, I don't know the right way to state this, she is a consultant for, a legal consultant for Ripple. So what does that say about about her role at the SEC and what was occurring under her tenure. And also looking at Barack Obama, Barack Obama had three different SEC chairmen during his period. George W. Bush had three during his period. It's not uncommon to appoint multiple commissioners. Truman appointed four. I don't know. I have some clear issues with the SEC, with the people who have been put in charge with the SEC. I think it's not uncommon also that multimillionaires are in charge of the SEC. Uh, I don't know Gary Gensler's exact net worth, but I believe he's worth over $100 million. Is that right? It would not surprise me at this point. Oh, he's a former Goldman Sachs guy. Bloomberg reported in February of 2021 that Gensler is worth almost $120 million. Yeah. You know, he might do a great job. I don't know. Whatever. But do I usually want people 
with that kind of net worth in charge of a financial regulator? Probably not. I think other people would make the argument that there's a good reason for that, right? Yeah, that's what I was about to say. We always hear the counter argument when we say something like that is these people were on Wall Street. They know the tricks. They know how it works. They have a deep understanding of these things and so can effectively regulate it. And frankly, I've seen very little evidence to support that claim, but it is a claim we hear uh, enthusiastically made. And it was like one of the uh, objections to Omarosa when she was nominated to head the OCC, right, is that she was an academic and so she hadn't actually worked there and didn't actually know what these, how these things work. There's a claim senators were making against her nomination and stuff. And so whether or not it's an accurate description, it seems to be what many of our elected officials at least say they believe. Yeah, and like you said, there's not a lot of reason to support that because, I don't know, I don't, any, no one can name an important SEC case since, like, Howie. Yeah, and like, well, I think Reeves came after Howie too, and that's pretty important, so you can name that one. But like, Elon Musk, great, he settles with the SEC, he's required to have a Twitter sitter reviewing every single one of his tweets, and then he just doesn't, and the SEC is like, huh, well, ain't that funny. <laughs> We're doing a lot more rant episodes <laughs> recently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, well, look, I mean, I don't want to suggest that there's no reason for the SEC to exist. Like, you do want securities markets to be regulated in some way. You also don't want them to be regulated to the point where innovation isn't able to occur. I think that is a fair discussion that you need to have if you have a regulated market. I think we're ranting because we don't think the SEC does a very good job of regulating the securities market. And if that's going to be your defined role, then you ought to be good at it. <laughs> And they've had 80, they've had almost 90 years now to kind of define the space and figure out what needs attention and why and when. And I think at the beginning, it seems like they had a really good idea of what that was. We were talking about blue sky laws. There were, there were these laws before these security acts that just kind of implicitly said certain things about selling securities, but securities lawyers would just go around these blue sky laws. It was very easy. They would say like, ah, oh, just send a securities offering through the mail. That way it's not covered in this way, which I think is super common now, right? We see people being like, well, it's on the blockchain, so it doesn't need to be registered with any sort of regulatory body or it's DeFi. They can't possibly get anyone in trouble for this. And I'm like, oof, that's definitely not correct. Um, but... but so far, very few people have gotten in trouble. That's it. It's toothless. They're toothless. They're not doing anything. So it's hard to suggest that these people, like, what's what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? I mean, people point to the EOS Block 1 settlement regularly. They point to Tether. I think that Tether is one that people love to point to and suggest that the New York AG doing an 18.5, obviously a very different agency here, um, but the New York AG doing an $18.5 million settlement and the CFTC doing a settlement two settlements with them that points to well they're not going to shut them down you're not going to go to jail yeah i mean and we've talked about a lot of historical frauds on here uh enron worldcom and very often for many of these frauds if anyone goes to jail it'll be like one or two of the top executives you can be very deeply implicated in committing white collar crimes in america and get out on probation pay a fine and have relatively few consequences. Jeff Skilling is like still out here trying to start new businesses, right? 
doing very similar things to what Enron was doing. And we're just all like, huh, look at that. There he goes again. You know, maybe someone will correct me if this is wrong, but I believe he went to jail still holding millions and millions of dollars that were essentially stolen from sh shareholders. So he didn't get all of his money taken away. He still had money when he went to prison. Um, and when he came out, he still had money. And Lou Pai is the other famous Enron individual. Nothing happened to him. Nothing. He kept his hundreds of millions of dollars, bought ranch land, married his stripper girlfriend. The point here being that none of these major frauds were stopped by the SEC. And oftentimes these people walk away from the fraud like, well, I'm just gonna wipe my hands of that and keep working and keep building. You know, as these people say, I'm, I'm so glad that people are building Ponzi schemes and and frauds and scams. It's it. It's good because they're building. That's the important part. As long as you're building, it doesn't matter what you build. Yeah, exactly. My uh, my dollar incinerator is valuable. Sure, it only incinerates dollars, but I built it with my own two hands, and you can come up here and put your dollars in and get them incinerated for a small fee. Um. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so look, I, sorry, I, I want to get us back on the idea that, like, look, there there's a purpose for the SEC to exist, and while I don't hope that they stifle progress like i think the amount of failures we've seen over the years whether we're talking the dot-com bubble whether we're talking about the 08 financial crisis or we're talking about bernie madoff they frequently fail to interpret what's going to happen whether it's with a specific company or asset whether we're specifically talking about madoff's hedge fund or enron doing totally fake accounting they don't ever try to do something before it's too late. So I think anyone who says that they're innovation killers, you can write that off. Uh, that's just not true. They're, they're not innovation killers. But God, I would love for them to do their job. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> and to be clear, they do something. Companies have to report certain things. There's filings you can access in Edgar. There is more transparency into the securities market than there was in 1929. But... They're not so great at preventing damages. And really, really, what I want again, and I mentioned this offhand earlier in the episode, is I would love another really good Pecora doing something like the Pecora investigation, which was, so for those who don't know, back in 1932, the Senate con uh, convened a committee to look into the bankers and the other individuals involved in the stock crash in 1929. The first couple councils were completely ineffective, but finally they brought on Pecora. And this was a lawyer who seemed to have a really good grasp on what was actually happening here. And he was able to call the bankers in front of the Senate and got them to admit some things that made them pretty uncomfortable. How much money they were making as these things collapsed, the bonuses they were getting. And he even got one of the executives to end up resigning what's now Citibank because they detailed the, the way they were trying to cover up the bad loans they made to the Cuban sugar industry. And so what the entire purpose of these regulatory bodies is, is to have standing bodies full of experts capable of deeply interrogating the bankers, the people issuing securities in these businesses, so that you don't need to convene a Senate committee each time. So you've got people whose sole directive is to figure out this kind of thing, find the places where these bad loans are being made, find the places where executives are trying to cover it up, and they are falling short of that standard. And they're not alone in that. I think 
the CFTC is pretty toothless as well. I think it's all it's all pretty toothless. And when they do do things, again, it, it always points to the absurdity. I forget what that guy's, I think his name was Dick Shit, the McKinsey consultant who was caught insider trading. He was insider trading like $150,000 and doing terrible trades along the way. And so they prosecute that guy. And you go, wait, what? Like, sorry, what are you doing? And, you know, we're not lawyers, but I think the... What I always think about when it comes to all of these is that they go for the lowest hanging fruit that they possibly can. Whoever is going to settle or admit fault, they're just going to go for that. Any difficult case that might take years to accomplish, they're not going to do it. And there's two reasons for that. One, it costs a lot of money. And if you lose, <laughs> then you just spent a lot of money out of your budget for something that got you absolutely nothing. But second of all, if it takes too long, you might not even be the commissioner of the SEC by the time it gets decided. And then the next SEC person looks really great if it works out. So I think that there's like a lot of this ego involved. It certainly is. And foundationally for me, what we have in America is a complete lack of desire to prosecute those with money. And this comes because the United States has been so deeply corrupted by these incredibly wealthy individuals, with politicians being effectively bought off by these wealthy campaign donors, these regulatory agencies being co-opted by these uh, wealthy business owners, and by, like, we talked about this in the Pandora Papers episode, the United States is one of the world's capitals for money laundering and trying to hide these funds and evade these taxes and stuff. And that just general bend towards kleptocracy has completely eliminated any kind of political will for serious on-the-beat enforcement for any kind of white-collar crime. Because the people paying for all these things, many of them are probably committing white-collar crimes. This brings me to my last point that I want to make about the SEC, because clearly we have issues with how they operate and think overall that as a regulator, they've failed. This is why I think it's so important for citizen journalists and citizen activists to speak out about the issues that are going on, be it general fraud or something like a billionaire telling a senator they thought they were dead. These things, you know, should be under some sort of purview. And if that purview isn't going to be from the government or regulators who seem to be refusing to do their jobs, then the people who have to do it are journalists, citizen journalists, and activists. And my favorite recent one to look at where you can be like, oh, one dude changed everything is... Theranos and John Carreyrou, one man going in and asking very simple questions. He wasn't even like being an <laughs> right? This one journalist goes in and destroys a multi-billion dollar company because it's a fraud and no one was trying to figure it out. No one cared. No one cared except for him. And so I, I, I'm, I appreciate, I appreciate so much what you do, Bennett. I appreciate, um, a, a, a the Protoss newsroom very much, uh, Nick, Nick and Anna and Daniel over at Coindesk. There's a lot of people who are working hard to try to learn answers in this space. And it's important to note that you're, no one's going to do it for you. If you see an issue 
try to figure it out, try to learn about it, try to know what's going on and talk about it. Learn how to do a Freedom of Information Act request. You know, people say write to your senator and <laughs> don't do that. Forget that. <laughs> I, really forget it. I know that people are going to get mad that I said that. But uh, if a senator Free wants to senator. hear the, the way you're going to have a sen get get a senator's ear isn't by sending them a letter. It's going to be by speaking out loudly about issues that you see. And then hopefully the senator would like reach out to you. So I I really do appreciate what a lot of people are doing because regulators aren't doing it for us. Yeah, do what you can to hold power to account and remember the billionaire is probably not your friend.